0: But well, we have been in a series in the book of Titus. Um, Titus is a what is known as a pastoral epistle, uh, a letter, a, a letter that is uh, really rooted in pastoral care, along with uh, the two books of Timothy first um, Second Timothy and Titus, these pastoral letters, these pastoral epistles they're, they're, they're letters that are Wonderfully simple and practical for each individual Christian and for a local church. I know this, this is near ancient Eastern reading. It's, 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 you're talking 2,000 years ago and there are, there are ways you can think, well, how, how does this connect? And particularly um, the week after next when we talk about Titus chapter two verses nine and 10. It can seem like even, or even further apart, but it is so untrue. This book is so simple because it, it speaks to the very struggles that a church in Crete and churches in Crete are having. It speaks to those struggles and those struggles are the very same struggles we face today. This this book has great relevance and great application to our lives and the world that we live in. And so as, as these words are read, um, place yourself not only where you are today, but, but go back 2,000 years and realize, hey, th- these, these folks are not much different than us, other than Obviously different clothing and and the technology is is different. Um, The realities of humanity and the human heart and life, they're all the same. So Paul, in his writing to to Titus and to the churches in Crete, Paul, Paul is just pastoring these people. And this morning, the Lord, in his in his compassion and in his mercy, wants to pastor you and pastor me through these words. Look with me in Titus chapter two. And You're going to be uh, reminded of this again and again. Devin did this. I will do the same. We'll begin at the beginning of chapter 2 and make our way to our verse. Paul writes to Titus and he says, chapter 2, verse 1, but as for you, so he's talking to Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, Self-controlled, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, "'Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, "'and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech "'that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, "'having nothing evil to say about us. "'Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything.'" They are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, not showing, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works declare these things exhort and rebuke with all authority let no one disregard you that is the word of god and paul ends this Chapter. He ends this section with these words. Declare these things. Exhort. Rebuke. With all authority. Let no one disregard you. And so in obedience to these last words. Do not disregard what the Lord is saying. But, but be attentive. And I know you are. Because I know that is your heart. A mom was preparing pancakes for her two sons, Kevin and Ryan, age three. As the boys began to argue over who would get the first pancake, the mom saw an opportunity for a lesson on serving. If Jesus were sitting here, he would say, Let my brother have the first pancake. I can wait. Kevin turned to his younger brother and said, Ryan, you be Jesus. <laughs> Appetite, appetites can be hard to control, and we can desire many things and we want what we want. This revealing, this little illustration is an illustration of all our hearts and our desires and the natural leanings we have towards selfishness. This is exactly what Paul is addressing here in Titus. He is just writing to a church. He is writing to Titus, but who is going to communicate this. This is a circular letter, so it will be going around to the churches in Crete. And it's it's read publicly. It's read openly. It's not handed from person to person. But it's like a group here sitting here listening to these words from Paul. Paul, and these these words are addressing these folks on the island of Crete, and Titus is the one doing it, and he is writing to professing Christians who are faced with the challenge of living for Christ in an anti-God culture that promotes self-indulgence as the highest good. It promotes selfishness as the highest good. It promotes self. Whatever is good for you is what is best. That is what the Cretan culture was all about. And there are Cretans in this passage that we've read in the previous passages who profess to know God but live differently than the life Paul describes they profess to know God, but their lives really they reveal who they truly are. As we see in Titus 1, verses 15 and 16, Paul writes to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. And here he goes, and he's talking about Cretans, he say, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works, and they are detestable, they are disobedient and they are unfit for any good work. Paul sees the contradiction in in between what is professed and what is real. He sees this great contradiction of these men who stand up and profess to know Christ, but their lives are just the opposite. They deny him. They deny Christ by their works. In fact, their works are unfit For anything and they are detestable, Paul writes, and they are disobedient, Paul writes. He sees this contradiction and his standard and his reason for writing a standard for genuine faith and godliness. It's high. It's it's very high. And he's not he's not allowing the, the Christians on Crete to settle for a I am not that bad philosophy, which is a bankrupt philosophy. Sin is a problem whether it is big or small, and over time our, our unchecked sins can defile our conscience, turning us away from the truth. Paul writes in Corinthians, therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And Paul, Paul is urging these Cretan Christians, listen, don't, don't let the little sins creep in there. The, the practical writing here, where Paul writes in chapter two, it's just things of of just normal life. Don't don't be addicted to much wine. Don't don't be selfish. Be dignified. Be sober minded. Urge younger men to be self controlled, which is our verse this morning, verses six through eight. Paul says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self controlled. And then he moves on to Titus. He says, Look, Titus, not only do I want these younger men to be self controlled, and I want you to urge them. I want you to exhort them. I want you to implore them. I want you to appeal to them to be self controlled. But listen, listen to me, Titus. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Christ has changed these people. And Paul is laying groundwork and he's laying boundaries for this, this group of churches, these These believers who have had their life transformed by Christ, and He is saying, Look, this is how these false teachers, these professing Christians who are unfit for any good work, this is how they live. And he describes it all in chapter one. They're deceivers, they're empty talkers, their lifestyle and the very things they do are just the opposite. And Paul here in chapter two is, is he's describing the antithesis of what these Cretan unbelievers, these false teachers, It's the antithesis. Listen, this is how they live. This is how you are to live. And the boundaries, the boundaries are here, provided by Paul, and that the standard is high. It is high for Christians. Titus, Paul is giving an apt description in verse of chapter 3, he he describes what, what we were once like. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, we were disobedient, we were led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That is who we once were apart from Christ transforming us. And Paul, Paul does not want us to go back there. He does not want these believers to go back there. And he wants these believers to remember who they were, and where they were, and what they were. And so he gives these wonderful, helpful boundaries of what it's like to genuinely live for Christ. And he does it By reminding them of what God has done in their lives. Verse 11 of chapter 14. And we'll we'll spend a Sunday on this passage. But he writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, in, in their present age and now our present age, waiting waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And to purify himself, a people. Christ's gospel, the cross, Christ's death on the cross, made it all possible for these folks who who were once what we just described, Slaves to various passions, passing days in malice, hating one another and being hated. Christ has come. Christ died for their sins. And now they are waiting for his appearing. And until that day, he is transforming them more and more into his image. And Paul is writing to Titus and saying, hey, listen, preach this. Exhort the church to this end. Don't let them lose sight of who Christ is and what Christ has done. Brothers and sisters, we have been saved by God's wonderful mercy through his son, Jesus Christ. And we are now called to live for his honor and glory and to live with doing good works. Good works not to save us. Paul writes in chapter 3, verse 5, that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you have been saved, and this not of yourselves. So this call to good works that that Paul is, is imploring Titus to, to preach this call to good works that we are called to do, that we are called to demonstrate, that we are called to model. This call to good works is not a good works that leads to our salvation, but good works that reveal our salvation. Good works that, that declare the glory of God, that God has done something in us and that we are no longer these people who were once foolish and disobedient, who were led astray and slaves to various passions and pleasures and passing our days in malice and envy and hated by others and hating one another. We're no longer like that. We're different. We are transformed. Transformed. And the same grace that saved us is the same grace that continues to sanctify us, transforming us day by day, and we cooperate with that grace by saying no to what is sin and yes to what is holy. That's what Paul is is asking for here. That's what Paul is commanding here. And this is what he's been exhorting these Cretan Christians to do. And it's why at the very end he says declare these things and exhort those, those, those Cretan believers to do this and rebuke those who do not with all authority. Speak truth to them. Ex- have them examine their lives and take measure of of who they and who you really are. Professing Christians with no genuine good works or genuine believers whose good works are, are evident. Brothers and sisters, listen, our, our culture today is very much like this Cretan culture. Self-indulgent, independent, self-seeking, self-promoting, encouraging a lifestyle that stands in direct opposition to God and all that he requires from those who profess to know him. In, in both cultures, everything good that God stands for in our culture and in the Cretan culture, everything good that God stands for is declared evil. You think about that today. Everything that God stands for. Marriage between one man And one woman, that is typically declared evil. Everything that God declares good is declared evil. And every evil that God opposes in our culture today is typically declared as good. And that is what these Cretans are facing, and that is what we are facing. God demands a certain way of life, not because he is this domineering overzealous authority he does it because he is a loving savior he is a compassionate father and his purpose is to save us initially from sin's penalty and lead us into freedom that all his children will experience but our culture like the Cretan culture is is opposed to a life that is sold out to christ You face the same kind of opposition that these Cretans face. You face that every day. It just comes packaged a little differently. Our everyday lives and activities are the battleground. They are the battleground where we will either follow Christ... Or we will follow a bankrupt world's way that does not believe that God is the ultimate good and ultimate authority. We, we choose. And in Titus 1 and 2, Paul, Paul has told Titus, listen, here's my purpose for writing. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he says this, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. He, God, God is after, for the sake of his elect, you, for the sake of those who have come to faith in Christ, this letter is written that you would have a knowledge of the truth, that you would live a godly life for the glory and honor of God and for your good. And so, Paul writes, and as we've read, he's, he's written to elders, and he's written to older men, and he's written to older women, and he's written to younger women, and this morning we're, we're reading his words to younger men. Now, guys, we're, we're just declaring, anybody 50 and below, all right, we're, we're, that's, that's, kinda, that's the cutoff, but just because you're fifty one and above doesn 't mean that self control is not a part of your life, because if you remember in verse two of chapter two, older men are to be sober minded dignified and self controlled so let these words appeal to your hearts, let these words drive into your hearts, but Paul writes particularly to younger men, and younger men listen, listen carefully, likewise urge some some versions some translations say Encourage others. Say exhort, but the ESV and I like what the it says: urge the younger men to be self-controlled. He's extolled godly leadership. He's condemned false teachers who oppose the truth. He's exhorted older men. He's exhorted older women. He's exhorted younger women, and on what it looks like to live and follow after Christ, and what they are to oppose when it comes to evil. And now, and now he moves on to the next group, <coughs> and he addresses young men. Why? And particularly just young men alone. Well, they are the group that is most vulnerable to the culture's enticements, to the culture's temptations. Who are the younger men? Again, <clears throat> anyone not classified as an old man. <laughs> That's who the younger men are. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're my age, you're 64 years old, and you think, I'm young, great, I am speaking to you this morning. <laughs> now, the command to self-control is spoken to every group, so let's just be careful not to wander away um, thinking... It's just young, only young men. Um, that's not the case. But what Paul is saying here is this, and he's been saying it to every group, because of the transforming grace of God, self-control is possible. Now, again, self-control, it, it appears in every group. At the beginning of, in chapter one, he tells the elders, who, he says, those who are going to be elders, they need to be self-controlled. Those who are older men, you need to be self-controlled. Younger younger women, older women, you need to be self-controlled. Now, young men, you need to be self-controlled. And then, as we see, the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled. So you get the idea... Five times, six times, self control is a serious issue with Paul and what's going on in the Cretan church. And so he is making a case, the transforming grace of God, self control is possible. And particularly for young men, this is to be your way of life because this is, appears to be your greatest temptation. And so Paul helps us by giving an exhortation, an example, and the effect. And the exhortation is Paul urges. He urges. He pulls no punches. He looks to this one group, these, these young men, you and, and you and and I can't look at Chris, um, but I can look around and I can see the young men, D. D. Edmund Hebert, who is a commentator, he said this. He said, only one demand is made upon younger men. And it is a comprehensive demand that covers all of their lives. This strong appeal to young men is, is similar how Paul appeals to all the others in their areas, but in different one respect. Listen, with elders, he lists 16 qualities that he believes they need to have. Older men, he lists six Older women, he lists five. Younger women, he lists seven qualities. But with young men, only one self control, self mastery. The many other requirements that are mentioned to the other groups are certainly expected, but here Paul singles out the one character quality in particular, and for a very significant reason, it's the one character quality that can be most troubling to young men. Controlling our passions. And I say our, I'm doing it rhetorically now at 64 years old. But controlling our passions, guys. Young men are passionate. And those passions can quickly spiral out of control. Self-control is expected of every group, but this is where young guys are easily tempted. So Paul urges them. He urges, cultivate a life of self-restraint. Cultivate a life of self-restraint in your appetites, in your passions, in your behaviors. Robert Yarbrough In his commentary, he said this, Everyone in the church should exhibit this quality about self-control. But young men are susceptible to particular blandishments. I had to look that word up. That means flattery. And allurements that detract from Godward aims. Even lawful pursuits and callings may become objects of idolatrous devotion. Titus's challenge is to direct young men's intensity and energy in redemptive directions. And I love this word, tethering them to God's will and direction in their lives through the sound doctrine they receive. So guys, Yarbrough is saying, listen, you you want to be tethered to sound doctrine so that you can use that energy that that passion that intensity in the redemptive directions that God calls you to <coughs> now the ESV states that younger men must have they use they use the word self-control the NASB says Sensible, and the King, New King James says sober minded. So, so you know, Paul, Paul urges them to younger men to be self controlled. The NASB says, urge the younger men to be sober minded or, or to be sensible. W- which one is correct? They're all correct, they all describe a way of life. A, a one of the one of the commentators said, a life of self mastery a life of self-mastery where your emotions and your passions and your intensities don't determine the course of your life. <clears throat> but your, your faith and your doctrine and truth stands above the feelings and experiences that you have or desire. Listen, self-control covers a wide wide range of men's challenges control of temper control of tongue control of ambition control of greed especially bodily appetites and that is this the next one is an issue that is serious to crete including sexual urges so that christian young men remain committed to the Christian standard of purity before marriage and faithfulness and purity after marriage. These are the kinds of appetites. These are the kinds of urges. These are the kinds of passions and desires, the kinds of self-seeking that Paul is addressing and saying, guys, By God's Spirit, you can get hold of those passions. You can be self-controlled. Listen, Paul's urging, it is not an impossible task. It It is to be a spiritual outworking of an inward spiritual transformation. If you belong to Christ, if we belong to Christ, he's changed us. Romans 6 tells us we're no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. We're new creations. 2 Corinthians 5, we, the old has passed away, the new has come. And apart from him, apart from Christ, self mastery is seriously impossible. But because we have his spirit, we can live godly lives. Listen, if self control wasn't possible, there would be no point. In Paul exhorting these Cretan Christians to live that way. Now, it's not an expectation of perfection, for that will not happen in this life. But Paul's urging is, it's an exhortation to do this, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And now, excuse me, This is a pastor's heart. This is a father's heart. If Paul were here and he was standing at this pulpit at this moment, and he was looking across this room, he would be he would be imploring the young men here to say, "Look, guys, we're all aware. We're all aware of our sin." We're all aware of our failings. We're all aware of our struggles. We're all aware of the grace of God. Don't settle. Don't settle. Pursue godliness. Paul Paul writes, he, he writes in, in 1 Corinthians 9, he describes what your life should be like, what my life should be like, but in particular for a young man, he says, listen, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is not an impossible task. And so Paul exhorts. He urges. Secondly, he gives an example. He now shifts to exhorting Titus to be an example For these men, show yourself, Titus, in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Listen, these false teachers are being put to shame by Paul. These are the very, these are the very, this is the antithesis, the opposite of of what Paul is, is telling Titus he is to be. He's urging Titus to be a model of godly behavior and self-control for these young men. And he, he must do it in two ways. He must do it by good works. And he must do it through his teaching. Teaching sound doctrine alone as we read in verse 1 of chapter 2. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teaching sound doctrine alone is just, is just not enough. It's not sufficient. Because he wants Titus to let that sound doctrine prove itself in the way he lives be an example to everyone that they might become more like Christ. Now, he's speaking to Titus, and Titus is, is a pastor, and this verse does have application to Devon and to me. We are to show ourselves in all respects to be a model of good works. And in our teaching to show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned. That is who we are to be. He wants Titus to not only urge God, godly behavior, but be that example. And that's, that's what you should expect from your pastors. You have a right to expect that from your pastors you You should demand that from your pastors, not perfection you 'll be disappointed there, but godliness for sure. John Stott writes in his commentary. He said the word Paul uses here is typos, a prototype or pattern. We are familiar with the idea that Old Testament characters are types for us to learn from. What happened to them, we are told, occurred as examples and was recorded in Scripture as a warning or exhortation to us. But God has not provided us with dead models only, whether patriarchs in the Old Testament or apostles in the New. He wants us to have living models as well. The chief among these should be the pastors of the local church that's weighty and appropriate so the first way he wants us to do that but listen don't, don't just limit this to pastors because I could, I could I, I can, and appropriately so I can drill this down to dad's in fact, we just learned all about that. Older men be an example. Older women be an example to the younger women. I mean, we're we're always carrying this. We're always being watched so good works Robert Yarbrough in his commentary says listen by a life rich in good works Titus points beyond himself and his teaching to the God he serves and the Christ whose gospel he ministers for Titus and all the groups he admonishes their task consist not in acquisition of some special knowledge not in arriving at a peculiar experience of divine grace but in the transformation of the daily affairs that fill up everyday life do you get that? Listen, this this material, these, these words in Titus, these exhortations, these expectations, these commands, this is about everyday life. This is about everyday activities. These, these young men have already had a bad example given to them by the false teachers that we read about in chapter 1 whose, whose works were evil and their profession of faith was proven false by the way they lived. And Titus, Titus is the antithesis of these men. And Paul wants him and the Cretan believers to silence these heretics, to silence these false teachers by their good works. And that's our responsibility as well. Because we have a culture around us that wants to silence us. And we refuse to be silenced. We will speak for Christ. But we must live for Christ. So what we speak is genuine. And it will, at one day, silence our opponents. And we are to live in a way that adorns the gospel and Titus is to model this godly behavior that, and, and to have substance behind it, to have a reality behind it, particularly as a pastor of, a, of these churches. And, and, and I know, I mean, you should, your children should be watching the pastors here. We, like I said, we don't always do it perfectly. This was many years ago in Charlotte. I was driving and I was driving down it was a two lanes on both sides that was tapering down to one lane on both sides and I was driving and I just don't like to be last. I want to be first. And, and I don't like having cars in front of me. I only want cars behind me. And so I saw this minivan on my side and I just, so I just sped up and I got to the, to the one lane right before them. And I was just rejoicing in my victory until I looked in the rearview mirror and it was a member of a woman in my church. And she just looked at me as I looked in the rearview mirror and she went, That's not the example I should have been setting. We set an example by the way we live. And again, it, it drops down to dads and moms. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men. It drops down to all of us. Secondly, he is to be showing through his teaching as Paul writes here, show. Show yourself in all respects, in everything, in every way, to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. Integrity, Paul is saying, listen, Titus, your motive here, and this is, must be my motive and Devin's motive, is not for shameful gain. As you read in verse 11 of chapter 1, they must be silenced, these false teachers. They are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain when he's talking about how to discern who a pastor is he says listen you you want to raise men up into pastoral ministry who are in in verse 7 of chapter 1 not greedy for gain and so that is one of the respons- the integrity is that we're not here for gain we're here not working for out of fear or looking for favor we're here serving as those who stand as representatives of God's <clears throat> small shepherds. Men who shepherd the flock of God. And that, that is integrity. And then he goes on dignity. And this is, a, he means serious in proclamation. That the teaching that we bring here must be dignified. Serious in n- nature. Not, not a Sunday morning comedy routine. The idea of of preaching here is not to make you laugh. Uh, Illustrations can be humorous at times. Illustrations can be helpful. But the point of an illustration is to point you to Christ, not to just some funny illustration that can keep you laughing all day long. If that's the case, we've badly missed what preaching is all about. Humor is wonderful, but preaching God's Word has to come with a deep reverence and respect for God's Word. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said he called this, he called this the sacred desk. He called this not, not this in particular, just this place right here, because on it was the sacred word of God. With fear and trembling, he stood first. He stood first before God when he preached. And then he stood before his congregation, exalting Christ and confronting men and women who sat before him with truth. He confronted them with truth and he offered hope in the gospel that Christ had had saved them or could, will save them. He offered hope in the gospel that Christ has died for their sins and if they trust in Christ, they will be transformed and he will fill them with his spirit and he will be there and they will rise from the dead because Christ has risen from the dead. That is what, that is what Lloyd-Jones preached to his congregation, that they would hear the voice of God so they could be transformed by the grace of God. And Paul tells Titus, preach with dignity. And then finally he says, preach, be sound in speech, preach sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, a pure gospel, not a, a gospel that has been obliterated by these false teachers, these, these Cretans that are liars and, and those who are not genuine believers, but, but preach a gospel that is pure and untainted and then he says the effect of this the third thing the effect of this is simply this that your what you say will not be condemned cannot be condemned, so that an opponent, and there are opponents and there are opponents here in Crete, and there are opponents in our world as well, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So the gospel is protected. Titus's faithfulness in modeling godly behavior in teaching sound doctrine will have an effect. It should silence opponents, it should put them to shame for their opposition to Jesus and his gospel. And Paul, Paul's concern for the reputation of the gospel just as we are. We are concerned. And the effect of Titus' example and his teaching is that these opponents will have no ammunition to disparage the Savior. And the belief and the trust and the hope is that God's truth eventually will win out. Paul does not want false faith. Faith to damage Christ's name and diminish his glory, as well as din- diminishing our gospel proclamation. When we, when we don't live lives of self-control, particularly young men, or, or model our behavior or or model what we what we talk about, what we teach, if we don't do that, it it hurts. It diminishes, it disparages, it can disgrace the church's proclamation. And our evangelism can be muted. John MacArthur said this, he said, The true effectiveness of evangelism does not come from man-made methods, strategy, or marketing techniques adapted from the culture, but from the genuine virtue, moral purity, and godliness of believers whose lies give proof of the truth of God's Word and the power of Christ to redeem men from sin. That is what silences the critics and makes the gospel believable. Listen, self-control, particularly for young men, is it's crucial to the church's gospel witness. Many a church has experienced controversy and division and shame over the pastors who's, who have fallen into immorality, as well as church members And when you have to exercise in a local church, church discipline, because of a lack of self-control, it is a sobering and sad moment in the life of any church. And brothers and sisters, may Grace Church never have to exercise church discipline. Not... Just not for our good, but for God's glory. For the reputation of the gospel. That others who watch would come to faith in Christ because they see that God is real. That God really has transformed us. Now, it's not surprising that the idea of self-control can conjure up a number of wrong ideas. Ideas, wrong perspectives. Oh, it's a boring lifestyle. It's an enjoyment-free life. It's all about asceticism. It can appear legalistic. Who's to tell me what's pleasurable and not? What's indulgent or not? Where, where's Christ in all of this? Who, Wait a minute, what what does it mean to be self-controlled? What is Paul saying? Is it about self-effort? No, self-effort leads to self-righteousness and self-justification. That's not what this is about. Our our righteousness exists because Christ died for our sins. God has forgiven us. But there is work in cooperating with the Holy Spirit who is dwelling in us. Is there? Yes. Yes. You you bet we have to cooperate, but it's not a work that justifies us. It's a work that helps us grow in godliness and more into the image of Christ. Self self control is far more than telling myself not to do something bad. Self control, being sensible or, or sober minded, is about reflecting God's glory. Reflecting God's beauty. Bringing about God's exaltation. It's about imitating Christ. Not just about saying no, but saying yes to everything that Christ holds dear. This is where we're to be headed on our journey. This is And this, this imperative here to be self-controlled, this imperative of self-control is not a one-moment-in-time accomplishment. Oh, I got it! it's a lifelong transformation and one that is possible because Christ is always with us he says in Matthew 28, I'm with you even to the end of the age. Now, this is a serious demand and it is impossible apart to, uh, to achieve apart from Christ. But, but the grace of God has appeared, we read in verse 11. And so we can do this. We can live godly and self-controlled lives to achieve what Paul so passionately preaches earlier. That we would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Right. Father, thank you that we are not alone. That we do not walk in this world on our own. We do not attempt these things with our own ability and our own strength. Lord, we can do this because you have sent your Holy Spirit and you have empowered us to live godly lives for your glory. And so, Lord, we ask this morning where we have been lacking self-control, help. Help us to gain self-control. Help us to put to death the deeds of the flesh, as you say. And Lord, may all that we do be done because the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness. In Christ's name, amen.